question, what will we do in heaven? Ruben, there's going to be a cartoon coming up now. So for copyright reasons, you best not put my screen on. What will we do in heaven? You ever thought, what is it that we will do in heaven? Will we sit on a cloud with a harp? Will we um, some sort of float around? What will we do in heaven? Uh, I've often wondered, uh, is there a dog heaven? Of course, says Charlie Brown. What do you suppose it's like in dog heaven? What do you imagine that you will do in heaven? Everyone has a box of crayons and their own coloring book, says Snoopy. Now, that may not be what you imagine heaven to be like. But I want us to try and ponder what we think heaven is in part. We're going to look at the next bit of John. We've been chuntering our way through John's gospel, or I've been chuntering my way through John's gospel. I'm way behind. I apologize to all the small group leaders. They're about 15 studies ahead of me, so I do apologize. I just got stuck. But we will eventually finish John, and we were talking about remaining. That was August when we were doing that, and more recently we talked about the peace that we have in Jesus. If you go on our YouTube channel, you can find all of these things, or wherever you get podcasts, if you want to listen to stuff while you're driving, while you're walking, while you're trying to go to sleep, you can subscribe on podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is, and you can get all of this stuff. We have reached the grand place of chapter 17 and after Jesus said all this he looked towards heaven and he prays he says father the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you what does it mean what does uh, Jesus mean by glorifying it means to honor it means to let the splendor of greatness be declared he wants Jesus saying I want the father I want to be glorified I want all the goodness and greatness of the father to be known and the greatness of Jesus is to reveal the greatness of God now, now, just a tiny little interlude, because some people may worry and saying, well, does that mean that Jesus is separate from God? Does that mean they are different? Is Jesus really God? What's going on here within the Trinity? Uh, it's not always easy to understand, but we need to be very clear that um, Jesus gives plenty of clues in John's gospel that he and the Father are one as God. But in this time on earth, there is a relationship going on between the Father and the Son within God. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, the glory I had with you before the world began. This is earlier on. And then right at the very beginning of John's gospel, he spells it out. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning himself. And he was with God in the beginning. So here is Jesus on earth bringing glory to the Father. And in the midst of that, Jesus is glorified. And the Father is glorified. And God is glorified. A little bit later, he says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. He says, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So how has Jesus made God look fantastic? And how has Jesus revealed the goodness and greatness of God by completion? And then I was thinking, well, what has he done to complete? And I want to suggest just a few things. What is, this, is, this is being said minutes before Judas is going to kiss him on the cheek. And he's going to be led away. And he's going to be beaten and whipped and crucified 
and then rise from the dead. What has he completed? What did he do? What is Jesus saying? I have brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do, the reason he's come into the earth. I want to suggest a few things. Firstly, he's taught and commanded love. He's come amongst people and said, the most important thing you need to understand about the way you live your life, this is my command. Yeah, I know you've got 10 commands, but I'm going to sum them up in one. This is what you must do, love. And he's lived a life of love. He's completed this teaching. He's told them about how to love their enemies, and he's modeled loving their enemies. He's told them how to be gracious and merciful. And he has completed that compassion, the compassion that meets with those who others rejected, the compassion that calls people to follow him, who everybody else said could never be religious or, in, or accepted in God's sight. This is what Jesus has done. He's completed it. He's shown them. The women caught in adultery, the tax collectors up trees, the uh, woman at the well, the whole loads of different people who everybody else said that they muttered about him. How can you have anything to do with these people? And he's finished. He's finished the course for the disciples. They've been taught what it means. And now he is about to pray on the cross, the punishment for sin. He is going to die the death might not be the end for us. He's going to die the death that you and I deserve. He's going to take upon himself the sins of the world. And he's going to rise. And death will be defeated. And then he's going to send out the disciples and tell them to go and do what he has done to teach and to baptize. So he's finished the job. And he is to give them eternal life. Let's go back to verse 2. You granted him. Jesus is talking about himself, but he calls him him. He does that from time to time. Authority over all people. This is his prayer. He says, you've given the son authority. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has the right to judge. He's the right to say to each one of us, that which you have done is wrong. The way you behave, what you said, the way you do things, that is wrong. He has authority to judge and he has authority to forgive. He has authority to say your sins are forgiven when we bring them to him. He has the authority and the right to save, to save from eternal destruction and death and hell. He has the right to set people free from hell. He has the right to give eternal life. So what is eternal life? What is this life that he is giving? We're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to just read just a little bit more of the passage. He says, you've given authority to give eternal life to all those you have given him. Who are those he has given them? They are those who have obeyed your word. He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. He has given eternal life to all who obeyed your word. Now that they know everything you have, you have given me comes from you, for I have gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. He's given eternal life to everyone 
who has accepted his words. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. He's given eternal life to those who believe. What does that mean? Could be primarily the 12 disciples. It could be a larger group, whoever is responding to God's call. But whoever it is, he has given the right to have eternal life. So what is this eternal life? Is it just breathing forever? One reads about lots of folks who feel they don't want to live forever. They don't want to go to heaven. They don't want that existence because there's a, and a perception and a feeling that, that life would be boring. And many people do come towards the end of this life and feel, I've had enough. I think that's largely because we get, our bodies get uh, decay and we get aches and pains and because we get fed up of the sinfulness and the brokenness and the damage and the hurt that others cause to us and to this world. We get fed up with bad news. We get fed up with, uh, with winter and dark nights. We get fed up with all that stuff. So what is eternal life? Is all of that stuff in heaven? What is it that he's given us? And is it a good thing to have given us eternal life? He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does it mean to know God. How can that be eternal life? And the phrasing of this, the way it's written, is this isn't something when we die. It isn't, he isn't saying, when you die, you'll get to know God. He's saying something now. This is life now. That, In other words, that Jesus is saying, I want to give you the life of eternity now. So what on earth does that mean? N.T. Wright uh, emphasizes that in his, exp- his commentary on this verse. He says, the time of new life, life with a new quality, just not just quantity, going on and on forever. This eternal life, this life of the coming age, is not just something which people can have after their death. It isn't simply that in some future state the, the, the world will go on forever and ever. We shall be part of it. The point is rather that this new sort of life has come to birth in the world in and through Jesus. What is this life of knowing God that Jesus says, I give to everyone who who believes, everyone who obeys, I give it now. So what is this knowing God? Is it a feeling? Is it a sense of God's presence? In which case, many of us go, I don't feel I know God as well as those other keen Christians who seem to have a deep sense of the presence of God when I don't. Many of us don't feel God. Some of us do. And those who do can't understand why others don't. And those who don't can't understand why they don't. And what does it mean to feel God? But I fundamentally don't think that knowing God is a feeling. 
And we've, I've spoken about this before. There are other bits of John's gospel where we've talked about this. I don't think fundamentally knowing God is a feeling. The problem is my feelings are affected by whether my football team have got knocked out of the FA Cup or not, or whether I've wasted two hours watching absolute rubbish football on a Friday evening, or whether it's raining, or whether it's dark, or whether I'm hungry. I'm deeply unspiritual when I'm hungry. Or whether something hard and painful has happened that day. My feelings go all over the place. So it's wonderful to feel the presence of God. But for those of us who don't, I don't think this is really what knowing God means. I think knowing God is a change that happens in the heart because we've met God. And I want to try and outline what that change might look like. The first thing, and it goes back to what Jesus has accomplished, the first thing is that when we know God, we love his command to love. If you... When you hear about the idea of loving others, when you hear about the idea even of loving your neighbor, when you hear about the idea of loving the stranger, when you hear about the idea of loving the broken, if within you there's a part of you that goes, that's what I want to do. I think John in his letter makes it clear, then you know God. Because God is at work within us. And he's changed the way we see the world because we want to love. But if we think, I don't understand all this love stuff that you guys talk about at church. I just want to get as much money as I can, live my own quiet uh, life and hope that I get to heaven. It may be that we haven't quite understood God yet. And there's a bit more to know. Because he wants us to be as energized by living a life of love as he is. And another way that we might know that we know God is when we love mercy and compassion. When we hear the story of somebody who messed up but has been transformed. And we rejoice. When we hear the story of someone who has turned around and changed and left something behind that was damaging and moved into something more healthy, if there's a part of us that go, isn't that brilliant? If we love to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, then we will know God. But if there's a part of us that wants people to be punished... and wants people to pay and suffer for the things they've done wrong. But we haven't quite got to know God yet. Because when you get to know God, his mercy and his compassion transforms us. Sometimes religion masquerades as knowing God. You can always tell the difference between knowing God and religion. Religion condemns. Those who know God, welcome. How do I know if I know God? 
Another thing is that we simply make that decision to accept his eternal life. We make a decision. We say, God, that's what I want. I invite you to come into my life. And that, for some, is a feeling, but for others, it's just a choice. One of the reasons why we encourage people to get baptized is to make a declaration so that you've got a date, a moment when you said, I made a promise, I made a vow, I invited Jesus, and I declared my faith in him. And so those who know God are those who have made that choice. We may have felt nothing, we may have felt an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. We're just different people. But those who know God have made a choice. I'm just sort of gradually drifted into it. There's a moment where we declare it. And it may be that we can't remember that moment, which is why I would encourage you to get baptized. Because you need a moment when you say, this is my choice. And those who know God are those who are no longer attracted to the values and the ways of this world. We're those who, who, who've renounced it. There are those of us who've turned away and said, I don't want to be the wealthiest person in the world. I don't want to be the most popular person in the world. I don't want to, to, uh, to follow the values of this world. I want to follow the values of love. And we find ourselves dissatisfied with this world. We find ourselves aching. Those who know God find themselves feeling slightly on the outside. As the Bible puts it, we're citizens of another place. We feel foreigners in this culture. It doesn't satisfy. And that's how we know we know God. And lastly, those who know God are those who accept that commission. And there's something exciting for us about this week doing what God has asked of us. We don't know what that means and we feel unworthy, but we say to God, here I am. I'm, I'm offering you tomorrow morning. I'm offering you Tuesday afternoon. I'm offering to be your person at work with friends, in the family, at home, with the community. I'm, I want to be your envoy, your ambassador, your representative. And those who know God have a desire to do that. We just want to glorify. We want others to know the goodness of God. So we might sum up those who know God as those who know they are loved and valued. At which point some of us will quite rightly say, hang on, I don't feel loved and valued. I struggle with it. I don't know if God loves me enough. And when Jesus says he comes to bring eternal life starting now, he wants us to know this experience. He wants us to know, even if it's jumped with our head, if not yet our heart, he wants us to know that we are loved and valued. The value of anything is how much someone will pay for it. You put it on, on, on eBay, you will work out the value of something. You take it down to, I don't watch these programs, what, what are they called, the, the, the bargain hunting? Going for a song, what was that? I used to watch Going, am I that old? There was an antiques program called Going for a Song, wasn't there? Yeah? How old am I? What's it called now, the thing where they all queue up and they bring their thing they... Sorry? It is bargain hunt, is it? Okay, there's all that. Anyway, the point, uh, rambling, distraction, sorry. The point I'm making is that you work out the value of something by what people are willing to pay for it. You may think something's brilliant. Nobody wants to buy it. It's not. 
you and I are worth the blood of Jesus. The life given, the seeking out of you and I. You may feel I don't feel very valuable. Greater love has no one than this than he lays down his life for his friends. That wasn't really a scripture about war. It was a scripture about Jesus. We are precious. Objective. Scripturally true. We may not feel it. And though that is the life that Jesus wants to give to you and I. He wants us to know that we are loved and valued. He wants to know that we are cleansed and restored. The life of eternity is a life where we understand that the stuff we've got wrong, the things that make us feel unworthy, the things that we regret we said, the things we wished we had said, the things we wished we hadn't done, the things we wished we had done, the values, the instincts, the habits, the things in our life that are not good and not of God. He wants us to know that he wants to cleanse them and wash them. And the life he is offering is a life of forgiveness and mercy. It is the life that was offered to Zacchaeus. It is the life that is offered to the woman that was caught in adultery. It is the life that is offered to the woman at the world who had multiple partners. It is the life that he offers to us, loved, valued, cleansed, and restored. And the response is that those who know God are thankful and humbled. In other words, we are so in awe that God who created the universe should love us. That we focus not on what's wrong, but on what he's done. We sang that already, what he's done. And we come to a God and we bow before him and we say, praise him. This is the God. Those who know God are thankful and humbled. And we gather and encourage each other in worship because we recognize that he is far greater and we give him the glory. And those who know God are transformed and empowered. We invite the Holy Spirit to come into us, to transform us, to take us, to make us ever more like him, to be more filled with love, to be more filled with joy, to be more filled with peace, with goodness, with kindness, with gentleness, with self-control, with faithfulness, because we are commissioned to be something. We are guided out. And John goes on and he continues his prayer and I'm going to look at that the next time I'm speaking which is in a couple of weeks time. But I want to ask this question, so what? If the life that Jesus wants to offer is this life, what does that mean for us? Earlier in John's gospel he said, this is to my Father's glory that you, you and I, the disciples of Jesus bear much fruit. We've thought about how he glorified God but he's inviting us to glorify him. We're to honor and bring glory to God now. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
We are to live the life of eternity now. And in doing that, others will see the greatness, the glory, the beauty, the majesty of God and will turn to him. But how do we do that? How can I bring glory to God? How can I live out the life of eternity? I ask God to help me know that I'm loved and valued. You see, in heaven, and I'll come back to that. We'll do that in a second. How do I bring glory to God? I live out a knowledge that I'm loved and valued. And I live out this cleansing and this restoration. I bring my sins, as we sung about earlier, and we, we bring it to God, and we know that he washes us. And we live out being thankful and humble. And we live out and invite God's spirit to transform and empower. And we live out being commissioned and guided. We say, Lord, here I am. I offer you tomorrow. I offer you Tuesday. I want to be your mouthpiece, your hands, your heart in that school, in that college, in that office, in that family, in that street, among those neighbors, among those friends, in that place. I want to be living this life. Cartoon coming up, Reuben. We ask the question, what do we do in heaven? And I believe in heaven, we will do many of the things that we have done now and do now. I believe there will be beauty and mountains, and if not our mountains of this, even greater and better mountains and sunsets and trees and animals. And we'll live and work in community. I think we'll do many of the things that we do now, but it will be different. And it will be different because there won't be the limitations of the brokenness of this world. And actually, it's not really, it doesn't really matter whether we spend the whole time coloring in books or playing football or singing or dancing or gardening or whatever it is that we do in heaven. I think we'll do all of that stuff and all of that's great, but that is less important than the actual life that he's given us. What will we do in heaven? We will be loved and valued. And we can know that now. And we will know that without any problems in heaven. And for those of us who struggle to sense and feel the presence of God and worry that other people are far more spiritual than us because they know God better than us, there will come a time when... It says, the Bible says that God, the dwelling of God will be with his people and they will be his people and he will be their God. No longer will we doubt and question, but we will know that he loves us and that we're valued. And he invites us to live that life now and on through into eternity and we will know we are cleansed and restored. And that's the wonder of heaven. Yes, it will be great for me to be able to sing and be good at football. Yes, it will be great to see beautiful sunsets and all the kind of places that some of you have traveled to that I never have. Yeah, that's great. But what really matters 
is that I'm loved and valued, cleansed and restored, and I can know God in thankfulness and humility. And yes, I'll be transformed. And bit by bit, he's working on the rubbish and the sin in my life and removing it and making me more like Christ, bit by bit. But in heaven, it's complete. And he offers us that life now, and he says, let's start now. Don't have to wait to the end, to the new life. Let's start it now. And then I still think we'll have jobs to do. And it may be that God guides you tonight over to tea and coffee, over refreshments, to talk to somebody, to say something with somebody, to offer to pray for somebody. It may be that God guides you this week to phone somebody, to send a message to somebody, to help somebody, to provide a meal, to give a lift, to walk in in, in listening with somebody. But you know, I think in heaven we'll do the same. Only this time we won't get it wrong. And you'll hear God say, pop over to Donald and have a chat. Perhaps, maybe I'm wrong. But we'll be commissioned and guided to live the life that we were intended to live, that we were created to live. It isn't, heaven isn't a sort of self-centered festival of doing whatever Donald wants. Because that's ultimately belittling to humanity. It's actually us together living in the way God intended. And he offers that life now. He says, I will give them eternal life now and on forever. So in a moment, Sheila is going to come and lead us in responding to God. What life of heaven do we need to grow in? Which of these things do we go, Lord, it's... I don't feel it or I don't understand it or I don't know it. And we say to God, Lord, will you transform me? You've given me this. Will you, will you make it work in my heart? Lord, will you help me to know that I'm loved and valued? Not a feeling. Some of us have experienced rejection and pain from human beings. Some of us have experienced that from earliest moments. Therefore, it's hard for us to feel loved and valued. It's not a feeling, it's a truth, it's a fact, because there's a cross. And maybe your prayer in the last part of our time together is, Lord, help me to choose to know that I'm loved and valued. Or maybe you need to know to grow in being cleansed. You know the stuff in your life that's wrong and dirty, that needs to go, that needs to, to be dealt with, that needs to be released. Maybe there's shame and guilt and fear that lingers and that you just want to be free of. And maybe in our time together, you can bring it to the cross and say, Jesus, take it from me. Or maybe you want to grow in gratitude and you're asking God, Lift my eyes beyond what's not what I want to see who you really are and what you've really done. Or maybe your prayer in our time together is to be transformed and to be empowered and just to be equipped.
to be more like Jesus. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, here I am. Show me how to be your mouthpiece. Show me how to be your hands. Let my hands do the work that Jesus would have them do this week. I want to live a heavenly life now.